Welcome to the podcast of the Urban Mystic. This is season two where we meet with fellow deconstructors, fellow journeymen and journeywomen to get the story of their first experience of God, calling to ministry, deconstruction and present day. This is a bonus episode where we explore some insights sparked by conversations during the season. You know, you know, I was thinking last week, I said to Enos, um, it was stinking hot out this side. And it suddenly struck me that um, one of the measures of the distance that we've come this year in terms of what we've done is that when we first started this, it was relatively warm out here. And then I went through like three layers and blankets while we recorded. And last week, I was like just in shorts while we recorded and you think, sure, we've covered three seasons through two seasons. <laughs> we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast of the Urban Mystic. This is the last of our bonus episodes for this season, which leaves me in an interesting reflective space while we're in the conversation as a reflective space. It's just been a fantastic season. I thoroughly enjoyed connecting with you, Steve, and with all the all the guests and with everyone that I've been having conversations with in and around us. The last three guests being Johnny Lyston, Natalie Simmons, and Julie McVeigh, all for me bring across this, this tremendously human element. They're all people who are very present to their spirituality and almost thriving present to that as deconstructors in a way that that I hear as being different to when they were very much within their religious communities, within their communities of faith. And for me, the whole notion of, of, of the experience comes to the fore for them as they're deconstructing. And I, I absolutely love that. I love that they're very present to their spirituality. I love that they're very present to their lives. And, and in that sense, that there, there isn't the need for them to speak for an institution. There isn't a need for them to, to cross their, their T's or dot their I's as they go about talking. They don't have to be worried about offending anyone or about shaking anyone's faith for me there's there's an excitement of them being present to to their spirituality not in the sense of of their spirituality as internal reflective stuff but their spirituality as lived reality and of of the experience of engaging the transcendent and engaging god as they go about their life and as they go about engaging others And, and for me that's that's just something that i feel is strongly highlighted within within these last three and I, I was wondering if we could perhaps just pick up with that. You know, I was thinking I had a conversation during the week with, with one of our listeners, and they were f- reflecting on one of the things that they've loved the most about season two is the personal stories that have come through. That, you know, from, well, not even from time to time, but we are kind of covering some of the theological and theoretical and whatever perspectives on things, but, but that our guests have spoken so vulnerably and so personally and then they were saying as well that in terms of our reflections as well that we've also spoken from the personal which uh, they were actually saying they preferred from season one I'm still sort of in between if I'm honest but uh, I have enjoyed that as well and so you know I've, I've been thinking around our talk to our conversation tonight around these three guests who shared so personally and thinking you know, it would be wonderful I'm trying to think of ways to include my own, some of my own personal reflections as I think on what they've shared. I love that what, that you have positioned the end of season two with these three stories to close us off. And what I think that really says to me so powerfully 
is that no matter what role you come through in institution religion, what, what role you carry through institutional religion, no matter some of your experiences as minister or pastor or leader or lay leader or worship leader or tea and coffee vendor or whatever it might be, um, that at the, at the base level, right at the core, all of this is personal. And it is deeply personal. And I think our three guests have really highlighted that for me. And I love how you say that uh, you reflect on, their, on how present they are, you know, to their own realities, to their own spirituality. And that also really struck me. I think I, I agree with you. There's, there's, a, there's a bit of a letting go of needing to speak the right things and watch what you speak. Um, you know, as I talk with deconstructors and as I experience some of that myself, there is a, there's a relief that comes when you start to let go of some of the institutional baggage around, oh, I don't actually care if anyone's watching me anymore. <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah. they're, what they're thinking is they listen over my shoulder. Or am I saying the right thing? Am I always communicating the right thing? Am I upholding the institution all the time? And I love that that comes through so, so powerfully and it's a very sort of fresh expression that they bring. Um, and I see that you know, somewhat in myself as well. But I also love the idea of how vibrant they are in terms of their personal current reality, their spirituality. And I love that that is, for me at least, it seems to be a manifestation of their move, of their process. And it's almost as if, you know, I think I might be putting words in their mouths, so I must tread carefully because I'm perhaps also just projecting some of my own stuff, so I must just tease these out. But it's almost as if, as I listen to their stories, that they are expressing the stifling reality of the institutional, right, of the institution, and that it is this kind of wet blanket over your faith and your questioning. I mean, that comes through very definitely. Um, you can't push the boundaries. You can't question. And I felt that as well, that it's, it's stifling. It's like being stuck in a hot tin box in the middle of summer, in the sunlight and, and you can feel it the air is thick and it's hard to breathe and and although those may feel like physical realities i think they're sort of psychosomatic as well within the institution is the sense of these people around you are stifling it can feel as though the air is thicker and that this move away the step into deconstruction is almost like running out of the box and just taking that first deep breath and going, oh, it's just so much sweeter out here. And perhaps I perhaps I make, you know, perhaps I make that that point too powerfully, but I'm not sure that I do. Because when I've been able to shed some of those trappings myself, it's as if the air is just that much sweeter. It's just that much easier to breathe. Um, there's less of this sort of furtive looking over your shoulder, who's listening in, who's wondering. Uh, what you're thinking, where you're going, who you're leading astray. There's this kind of sense of, well, bugger it. I'm just going to own this. And despite many of the warnings, you know, and I've heard those repeated so often, don't fall away. And what's going to happen? You're going to step out of sight of the coals and you're going to get cold and then no one can rescue you. And yeah, the, the whole thing of no coal can be hot together. You'll end up being lukewarm and dying alone, dying out. Yes. Yes, it's, <laughs> I'll, I'll come back to that lukewarm. But um, yeah, and, and it's as if these three people are on fire. They've kind of rolled out of this fire and it's as if they've gone out of this little lukewarm patch and they've really caught a blaze. 
And I love that because it's such a challenge, I think, to the institution. Because you can try and explain it away and you can try and rationalize it away as best as you can. And you can talk about people losing their path and yeah, they're excited now, but they're excited about the wrong things. And I just don't buy it. Because when there is this, this step away, when there is this distance between institution and the person, and you look at how that first breath comes into their lungs, it's like a turbo in an engine and they just kick into the next gear. And, and you just go, okay, well, yeah, perhaps, perhaps you're the environment that was the problem, not the environment they're moving into. And this process is to be welcomed, not, not shot down, not maligned. And it's sad for me that in that, the institution just responds that way, as just cutting people's legs off, cutting them off, tries to silence them, it tries to belittle them, to shame them, all those sorts of things. One almost wonders that, well, these three guests and anyone else you might talk to that's had, who's had this experience, if they were to sum it up, would they say, actually, that fresh breath, that view out to the horizon, that kicking it into a higher gear, is it actually just worth all of the shame that they try to throw out, out, like at you as you leave the door? <laughs> Maybe it's actually just worth it because that process is, is really life-giving. And I can speak for myself. I, I, I feel as though my spirituality, what language would I want to use? My relationship with God, my awareness of God's presence, my attentiveness to God's voice, even some of the more sort of traditionally, sort of institutionally kind of things, if I can use that word, like reading the Bible or has a life to it that, you know, when I was lock, stock, and two smoking barrels inside the institution. I didn't find it there. Despite the promises, it wasn't there. As I've um, grappled with people over the years and uh, try to make sense of their experience and as they've tried to make sense of their experience, I find that there's often rich, vibrant experiences before someone commits to their religion and their faith or, or to Christianity. And so I've often noted that, that people have rich experiences and then they, they add this layer of a commit, committing their life, faith in Christ and joining church. And there's almost an absence of experiences. And so they get caught up almost within the, met, the larger narrative, the larger stories of Christianity and the business of doing church and their you know, their love or hate relationship, you know, the, the it was good till it wasn't process. But that period is often not about the experience of God. It's about the teaching. It's about the relationships. It's about the community. It's about church. And it's almost like when people start deconstructing, experience returns to the forefront again. And the whole thing of, of what is the experience of God? What is the relationship with God really like? You know, and so I, I feel like it's almost like, people's relationship with God becomes bound up with their relationship with the Bible and their relationship with church. And that becomes almost a substitute or their relationship with God has collapsed into that for the period that that's a big part of it. And, and when you take that away, the understanding is always, oh, but you're going to lose your faith in God because you need this. You have to be in this thing for that to work. And so I feel like when you, what, what is evidenced by like our last contributors, is that you remove that, that's not what happens. People actually enter again into that, into being present to that experience and being present to the quality of that relationship. And that for me, I, I think is just, it's, it's one of the most tremendous things about deconstruction 
is that it brings people back to that to that relational dimension. Do I love God? Do I experience God? Do I want to? And the okayness of the season of no, I don't, and the okayness of the season of of I do, you know, and that 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 permission to be and be present to that, I think, is is pretty awesome. It's it's almost as if that relationship to to let me call it book, the relationship to church, the relationship to I think even what I've seen in many churches is the, the relationship to the person at the front. You know, I don't know how many Christians I listen to talk about, oh, our pastor this or our minister that. And you think, okay, so you, you're just going to add a personality to the Trinity is what it sounds like, <laughs> or just replace it completely. That, that's how you're speaking about this person. But it's almost as if that sours. And for those who are, I don't know, brave enough, desperate enough, to acknowledge that it has soured, there is this falling back is kind of what I hear you describing into, well, what else do I have? Because I think they, I know I have heard that and I have, and I have taken that on board or I have believed it, that, that accusing voice that says, yeah, but if, if, if you stop drinking the sour milk, you've got nothing. <laughs> this yes. is all there is. Yeah. So you used the rice, rice, and the, the rice bowl analogy. Um, earlier earlier in the season <laughs> yeah yeah so, so those who are willing to go beyond that almost do fall back into that that initial relationship and realize oh wow there is something beyond this this sour drink um which which is as you say that, that some of those first experiences and there's an aliveness again um in that that is just not carried when you have a relationship with a building or an organization, when you have a relationship with just the, to be honest, the poor guy or gal at front who you've decided is now God. <laughs> and, um, and, and this book as well, which let's be honest, we've, uh, many, many Christians have also decided is God. It just completely shatters that, that myth for me around the necessity of the church and the sufficiency of faith alone the institution is actually not necessary and we we have to accept that and i think i think that's not it's not the same thing as going you know let's get the pitchforks and the torches and let's just burn it all down because that's not what we're saying but it is letting go of the of, of the myth of that and of people who really see the institution as a vehicle for doing the work of the garden the work of the kingdom etc cetera, etc cetera. you know for them to go actually this is this is a tool and as a tool that can be both good or bad you know, but it is not necessary as a tool that is not necessary um, and as a tool that is not sufficient. You know, we actually, they not, they've become substitutes for the relational engagement with God and, and they can enable that, but they can equally disable that. And in that sense, you know, it's, it's okay to let that go. I, I think also just the stories of, of people when, when we can connect to these stories and see how they come alive in their deconstruction. I think for me, it's it, it's an exciting encouragement for others to do the same. That brings us to to the second thing, the, the whole thing of the in out thing, and and of what a what a powerful role that plays in the coming to faith, and what a powerful role that in out thing plays as a as a as a as a almost like a point of pain and, and a point of fear and aggravation in the deconstruction. Several of our contributors, with um, you know Brian McLaren being one of the ones that really stand out as noting how podcasts like this, conversations like this, the internet enables people to more quickly discover today that they're not alone in their deconstruction. And it, it, it enables that 
podcasts and conversations like this that are taking place around the world, not only here, but elsewhere, just enables people to to let some of that pressure and that anxiety off themselves when it comes to deconstructing, to understand that actually we, we, we're part of a larger group of deconstructors and it's a larger and a growing group. What, one of, um, one of, the, one of the, the comments um, on, the, on the podcast that someone left earlier, and I just have to double check who it was um, so that I don't get, get it wrong, was just how they don't think that, that many people understand how big deconstruction is, how big a movement this is, how big, you know, how many people are deconstructing. And they can be deconstructing and staying within and quietly deconstructing within themselves. And others are more outspoken and more able to make that move. You know, and certainly when I've spoken to people, I've, I've often had talks with the second tier of, 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 of leaders who are in this place of deconstruction themselves, but they're not allowed to be um, outspoken about that because they will get fired, they will be asked to leave, they will be demoted. And so I've often had conversations with people at that second tier where on the side I, I have a discussion with them and they come alive in the deconstruction around, in the, they come alive in the conversation around deconstruction because it touches on so many things that they're passionate about and they're feeling that frustration that, that like Chris Harrison noted, of, of the institution is getting in the way. The business of doing church isn't enabling them to do stuff. Um, and they're caught in that middle position, but but often their senior leaders or their senior elders or you know whatever their top tier of management is for them, it, it, they're so sold on it that they have to play that game to keep the job, and they feel like they have to be in that place because well I'm experiencing God and. God says the church is necessary and sufficient and faith is sufficient, so I've got to be here. But on the side, there's a lot of those wonderful conversations that come out. You know, is that something that you, you're finding similarly taking place or, or is this something that I'm, I'm, I'm alone in? <laughs> no, not at all. I see, as I'm certain you do, that just a couple of different levels of that kind of in-out scenario and how powerful it is. So you mentioned there's the... You know, I think you're speaking specifically to kind of there's the economic reality of um, you know if you're employed, et cetera, et cetera. I see the the community oriented reality of well, I'm in here, and if I'm out, where do I belong as well? And I think you're talking to that in terms of of just the amount of resources. Firstly, and and I just want to qualify that a little bit. So there's amount of resources available on the internet that you can know you're not alone. But what I love that I've seen in the last couple of years specifically is that the resources are growing from this kind of passive consume space to people actively starting communities online around the resources. And I think that really answers a big question for people. You know, that, that would be high on my radar in terms of the in-out because I, I value belonging very highly. And so the question is, if I feel I don't belong here anymore, that's only half of it for me that, that handles the in. So I'm no longer in here, but then I'm out. So where is my next in? Where will I belong? Like, who's my tribe? Where are my people? Where are my fellow deconstructors? And so my, my first exposure to this was, I mean, I didn't realize I've been doing this stuff for a while <laughs> without having a title to it. And somebody introduced me to the deconstructionists podcast um, and it wasn't even, I mean, those guys are doing some great work. It wasn't even the hosts so much as they interviewed, 
I think I listened to Rob Bell and then Richard Raw and then someone else. And I finally realized, oh, this is who I am right now. <laughs> this is what I'm going through. This is, this is what this thing is that I'm doing. And that was, you know, maybe four or five years ago or so, my first exposure to that. But I had been asking these questions and, you know, having appendages locked off for a good 10 years or so previously as I'd started this process. Um, and I love that the resources out there on the internet, it's not just that you can sit there and passively listen to someone else and go, okay, well, somewhere else on this planet, there's somebody else who's also asking these questions. It only goes so far. But you can join groups like the liturgists. You can join the deconstructionists. They've got other resources that are actively linking people together. I mean, I looked at their website the other day and they've got links to counselors if you need to go through some therapy and debriefing while you go through this they've got groups there's and then I had a whole bunch of other resources of groups and I just think that is phenomenal because it answers that that community kind of threat question that's posed you better be careful if you're not going to be in you're going to be out and it's and and out doesn't look like the darkness with the wailing and gnashing of teeth anymore. Out looks actually quite attractive. <laughs> it looks it looks incredibly liberating and 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 incredibly healthy. <laughs> there's 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 a there's a being and a belonging in it that that is normally understood as well. You won't have a place to be or belong because your spirituality takes place within the church. Like it's here that your faith comes alive, where you serve God, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and the reality is, is actually quite opposite to that. And, and then I think one of the other, you know, so not the, 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 the horizontal human-to-human -human sort of community aspect, but I think part of the, the spiritual threat that is placed over people is the idea of, well, God is inside, God is not outside. And so there's that also question of the in-out of people facing, and I think we've talked about it as well before, but you won't find God outside of the walls of this church or the experience of this organization or you know, expression of church, etc. And our guests are showing us that that's just not true. And, you know, even as I think back across the season, there are a number of, of guests who've really testified to that. But these three really do, and I love that where we kind of started, that vibrant spirituality is saying that this in-out duality is no longer actually a framework that's helpful. There's another layer here that's, um, that, that you, you touched on earlier just as we, we were chatting ahead of us, and that is the, the notion that there's, there's a strong difference between the male and the female deconstructors, which I, yeah. I absolutely love. And we'll get into the elements of, of what the, the female voice and energy really brings to this. But, but just noting, you noted that the, the, the guys deconstruct personally and as a persona. And that as a persona, I found this on no, sorry, no, <laughs> that deconstruct personally and as a persona, <laughs> and, and that the persona takes some of the flack and it takes some of the brunt off of it. Yeah, I had kind of two things that sort of led into that as I was thinking. So, you know, I was thinking through the, the kind of length and breadth of deconstruction that we'd explored with our previous guests and realizing more and more as I listened to their stories, reflected on their stories, and then and then kind of mirrored my own and theirs. You know, I have resonance in some places and I lack resonance in other places and realized, sure, this, this idea of deconstruction, it's not reductionist. We, we can't just bring it down to, well, this is deconstruction or you have to reach this point. There's such a, a broad sort of band, a band, a spectrum of what's going on. And, and I had this picture of, of this, this wide horizontal spectrum 
And then our two wonderful female guests, as they spoke, it's as if it suddenly inverted and I realized there was a horizontal I hadn't been looking for or aware of. And it just blew my mind and going, it, it, it just gets bigger and bigger. And, and I think that's what I love about the personal. Because it is so personal, you can locate that person somewhere in the spectrum without having to expect that they are everywhere on the spectrum or that they should be everywhere on the spectrum. They can occupy their own experience, their, their own space in their own experience. And, and that really blew me away and, and it got me thinking, you know, if we, if we project into the future with a whole bunch of new guests looking at all sorts of different backgrounds and what would that teach us and show us and reveal to us in terms of people's deconstruction and their journeys and their experiences, et cetera. And, and that really blew me away. But, but the, our, our female guests just have some experiences that you just, you just don't hear in the, in the male experience. And, and I think some of it is because so many of our male guests were deconstructing not just as a member of a church, but had occupied various leadership positions. And so I could see the persona there as well. And so I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not attempting to sort of diagnose them clinically as having, you know, multiple personalities. But I am seeing that, you know, there are roles there that they deconstructed away from that our individual people did not necessarily deconstruct away from. And so some of those roles kind of took a little bit of the brunt as minister pastor or leader etc yes they they deconstruct personally but then they also play the role of i am now the deconstructor for others and i'm going to deconstruct this thing and uh, deconstruct the institution and i'm going to lend voice for people deconstructing and i think that's it, it's a it's it's such an important thing for there to be but what i get is that there is a there's there's an incompleteness to it and there's a completeness to it that's brought by the people that are just very present. They're individuals, and they bring the depth of that individual experience out. You know, there, there was a point that I, I may have mentioned it just just earlier in, in our introductory episode, but but there was a point where where we were going through our guests, and I was like, "But they're all male." And I I, mm, I sat down yeah. and I you know and, and I prayed and I said, "God, what about the female voice? I feel like it is something completely mi missing." And I don't know how to find it because it's it's on invitation and I'm connecting with people and and some of the women that I that I connected with that I wanted to to invite on they basically said no you know they they didn't want to come on um, and actually Nat, Natalie was one of those voices that initially said no okay <laughs> so sure. so it was great to ask her you know it was it was two or three months later down the line and for her to 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 say yes but it was very much a thing of going. The voices aren't incomplete. There's a there's a layer to people that have processed and lent voice to deconstruction that are so powerful. But I felt like there was a personal element missing. And that's that's where I love that that John spoke personally and as a persona. And Nat, Natalie and Julie as well, they, they also spoke personally and as a persona, you know, in terms of the role that they played and like lending a broader voice to it. But as you say, there's there's a depth that comes about through the last three contributors, and and for me that's not it's it's not a male female split. It's not like men only speak in the abstract and and women bring the relational depth. So so I'm I'm not getting into that 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 gender binary uh, BS, <laughs> but I am recognizing that there, there there's there's such a strong personal element that comes through. I think particularly through the female voices, 
that is missing in the male voices. And mm. and there's 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 a different felt experience that comes through. And as you say, I'd I'd love to hear more minority speaking. I'd love mm. to hear people deconstructing from within that that evangelical prophetic madness that I'm starting to get in touch with within the United States or within the the, the name it and claim it zone or within the the ridiculously fundamentalist and legalistic groups, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like mm. as you say, the deconstruction is so broad that that people's experiences are, are almost like they might move through different movements, but what impacts them is unique to their story. That, mm. that I think that there is a layering yet to come out. And what, what I love is the is there's a layering that comes out through Natalie's story and through Julie's story that mm. that really just hit me and it hit me in the fields in the way that, mm. that many of the other stories didn't. You know, I felt like I could and I and I think I know what some of it is, but it's hard to lend voice to it. Mm. There's that touching on the personal. And it's mm. always hard to speak vulnerably. But I love the way these last three guests spoke with a depth of vulnerability about mm. their own story without having to speak for the broader story. I love how you draw that together at the end. Speak their own story without having to speak for the broader story. I, I think that's put quite well. You know, I'm just wondering out loud as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking specifically, I think, back to Natalie's story. But I, I think it's very much present in Julie's as well. And so I'm going to just wonder out loud and take the risk of getting it horrifically wrong. And actually, if, <laughs> if you're listening or truly listening, I would love to hear your thoughts in return to this. Something that I pick up, okay, I'll also put in a quick other caveat. I'm nervous to speak like on behalf of women's experiences. So I'm reflecting my feeling, my senses from what, from what they've shared in terms of their experience. Well, well let's, let's just do the checklist. You, you, you white. Uh, 40 something close to evangelical or, or post evangelical male, right? <laughs> put it all on the table. <laughs> I, I should just put it out there. So am I, by the way, which is why I'm very, also very hesitant to say, let's speak on behalf of minorities or, or women or any, yes. anyone else. Yeah. yeah. And we're laughing, but we, we mean it. We're serious. So, we're serious. So, so I think it comes through very strongly in both of theirs the sense of being sidelined because they're women. Mm. And I wonder almost if part of the reason they are so free to speak just for their own experience is because so much of their experience within the institution has been them being told, but that's all you are. You are just a woman. You're not going to be leadership preaching up at the front, you're not going to be male material at any point. Mm. And so I wonder if, if part of that is in response to, to the messages of the institution. And so they haven't as much had to play the role that some of our male guest counterparts have, have played in terms of building that persona mm. around leadership within church. And I'm treating very carefully and I'm, and I'm so clear that I'm speaking under correction. I'm really wondering out loud. But I, but I wonder if that's part of, of what it is then for them to just go, okay, fine. Mm. <laughs> well, then I don't need to speak for your stupid institution and all your stuff. I can actually just be free to speak for me. And I'm not suggesting by any means that this is one of those, oh, what a wonderful gift 
They've been abused for so many years, and now this beautiful gift of just being able to speak for themselves. That's not what I'm suggesting. Yeah, hell no. I'm, I'm hell. acknowledging on the one side, <laughs> yeah, this is dangerous territory. I'm acknowledging on the one side what I see to be incredibly hurtful behavior by this institution, very harmful, very abusive. And, and that comes through so strongly. And you know, when you say it hits you in the feels, like I, mm. I'm looking for a bigger, bigger, bigger term for I think the, the emotion that we felt, you know, as we listened to that. I think there's the acknowledgement both from you and I that whatever limitations we have placed on ourselves and, and others have placed on us has been because they, they perhaps didn't like our thinking, they didn't like our personality, but it, it, it wasn't yeah. based on, on our, 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 the bits and bobs we were born with. You know, we, we, we haven't had the limitations placed on us because we're male we, we've had permission given to us because we're male and, and i think I, I i i want to recognize that and i feel like like it's you know it's easy to get into the whole thing of going i'm going to pick up an axe to grind women should be in ministry what is this nonsense uh, there's you know etc cetera, etc cetera. or when i was studying theology as a as a as a young uh, you know young man still you know, processing Paul's thing of women should not speak and and almost deconstructing that, you know, like in terms of theology and going, well, you know, that's not actually what he's saying. Paul co contradicts himself. Mm, mm. So, yeah, he's yeah he's dealing with specific problems and we can take it down to a regional thing, et cetera, et cetera. You know, th there's ways mm. in which you can engage that. But that theological depth is not what we go into when people teach in church. And that mm. theological depth is not what we have when women are forced to wear hats to church. It's just mm. one layer of it. And in another layer, the, the stupidity, I, I mean, I just think of, of, of Julie basically being told that one-on-one -on -one people must go and ask her questions, you know, theologically, <laughs> for them to unpack. And then go, oh, but if it becomes a group, then you can't. Or, or, or Natalie facing exactly that kind, of, that kind of thing as well. I just go... What on earth is going on? If you think back to the Pentecostal yeah. renewal when it was still healthy as well, many women preachers and many women prophetic people, like phenomenal contributors, but then as a movement they clean it up and that kind of stuff dies off. Mm. You know, mm. maybe correlation isn't causation, sure. Mm -hmm. So, so it didn't, God didn't stop moving because you shut women down, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's very much a part of it. There is a correlation mm. between the two. And that correlation, you know, the, the, the issue is really that you, that you stood against God, not that you stood against women. And you did that in the name of God with the Bible, you know, like, mm. you know, mm. et cetera, et cetera. I, I think there's, 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 mm. there's a conversation to be had here. And mm. um, Natalie and, and, and Julie, if, if you guys are listening to, if you do listen to our reflection, this is the kind of stuff I, I'd love us to have a conversation about this because I feel like there's so much to explore here, so much that frustrates mm. me because I haven't been part of the institution that has said that to women, mm. thankfully. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I just recognize that this is such a big thing. It's not a big thing in my experience, but it is such a big thing out there. And I don't know how to lend voice to it. I don't know how to deal with it, you know. Um, mm. And part of it is I, I just want to listen and understand mm. more about what your experience is in this. Mm. But I feel like this is, this is one of those chains, those enslavements that we actually need to break. 
it, it, it's some of the mm. fears that's out there religiously and within Christianity that we need to shatter and, and just get rid of and help and help people who are deconstructing where this is a point of pain for them become free and you know and I, I just feel like mm. I, I just you know it's one of those areas where I go I don't know how to do that I don't know if I can be good at doing that <laughs> you know mm. but there are people that can be and one of the privileges of this has been having conversations with people like Natalie and Julie and Perhaps they can be a voice to others. Perhaps they can process others. You know, I, you know, I, I don't know. There's no answers here for me. There's just this deep sense of, of rage at the injustice <laughs> that, 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 that women have experienced in this issue in, in church, in this area. Yeah, perhaps they can even come and say it for us even better. And as you say, I, I think one of the best stances is just to take on, on, a, on that, listening, uh, that listening pose. Um, and being brought into it, and who knows, our rage might even grow even further. Well, I'm I'm grateful that uh, that it that it worked out that they could join the list of guests, and then on top of that, for the way in which they contributed, it was very personally, it was very moving, and it was it was very powerful for me to be included in that, to hear them speak first person, to share those experiences, to be able to listen in and get that perspective. Um, you know, and to, to just to grow and be more exposed to that. I'm very grateful for that experience. You, you know, there was a layer, I feel like there was a layer of catharsis in that for me. I, I'm not good at lending voice to my pain or my frustration. And, you know, when Julie spoke about relationships that she lost, it, it just hit me in a way and, and reminded me of the pain that I felt with relationships that I've lost as I've deconstructed that um that i that i haven't been able to lend voice to and i think i think in some ways this there's so much more to that um to the loss of relationships and that humanizing of the way in which it impoverishes both people you know i i i think i, I think that people being forced out of communities because they're raising questions and those communities don't want to process those questions and and they don't want the questions to be raised. They feel like the answers are there and they must be accepted. I think it's just tremendously impoverishing. I think I think communities can grow so much deeper if they can find ways to have those conversations moving forward. And I think there again, I, I just wonder how different people's stories would be if the experience of Brian McLaren had. You know, we we he goes away with a group of people that go, we're with you in this in these questions, and they raise it against his will and go, you know, we, we want to have this conversation even if you don't, but it's because we want to be with you in it. I just wonder how the stories would have been different. You know, I, I think back to, to to John's story of of being in that one church and getting kind of like ousted from it. And and I remember being around during that time and people inviting me to come back and, and to help process that. And just recognizing that they could have planted three healthy churches out of that community, and there could have been four churches. And instead, what happened is 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 three things that God uh, was instigating end up being shattered, and one remains, and that one is impoverished for it. You know, I, I, you know, and I'm 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 you know speaking some thoughts out loud here, but but that's pretty much how it, how it played out. You've got one that one segment. <laughs> 
you know, that one segment that said to John, you know, we pay good tithes and, you know, we expect our religious goods and services, that, that group remained and the rest have been scattered and they've wonderfully deconstructed and moved on, I think. And other people have been wounded and, and probably just never want to come back or have anything to do with church and Christianity and Christ even. You know, and I think that's, there's, there's something tremendously sad in that. But I think that's often something that I see, that out of asking rich questions that lead people to engage deeply in the world and with others, people get ousted, whether it's asking about trans people or gay people, you know, it's just two easy things. Mm-hmm. Asking about the poor and impoverished communities, getting mm. in, into issues of social justice, you know, these are all... Mm social, these are all relational issues. They're, they're not theological at their core, you know. They, 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 they've got to do with human decency and with connecting with each other. <laughs> mm, you know? mm. um, and I feel like the theological just drives that wedge in the relationships and goes, well, you know, these people are sinners, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so they should be out there as opposed to being here because they're mm. going to muddy our church experience. And what we want is the good squeaky clean service delivery of our religious goods and services. No, but I mean, but it's such an easy space to hold, um, to just to just boil it down to that very simple black and white, you know, we believe this or we don't believe that, and there's the in and the out of it. Um, and, and I've often asked that question myself and sometimes felt sure it's quite arrogant to think if I or somebody else who was asking deep and rich questions were to leave a community, I do I leave it impoverished? It's almost a... I hear the accusation of ego in that. Well, what makes you so special? But the more I encounter people having something similar and I'm able to locate it in someone else, so then it's not ego. I can look at them and I can go, wow, your your community, your church, your little group of gathering of believers is really missing something because they had the opportunity to deeply engage with, you know, I'm also struck by that story that Brian McLaren tells. His leadership team is is sort of struck, he, this guy is asking questions, deep, rich questions. Do we need to be a part of that? What a wonderful open stance, as opposed to, let's have a quick look in our little book. Oh, doesn't match anything we see. Right, out. And, and they would have been severely impoverished to lose somebody like Brian McLaren in that way, as I believe the church that, you know, with David Hayward's experience, with John van der Laar, with... And now, you know, John, Eliastam, and then Julie, and then Natalie. And so then it is a little safer, I think, to also go, well, that can also be my journey. And I see it so often. It really is. You're right. It's an impoverished space. Not just I lose relationships, because I was also struck by that throughout this, throughout this, this season of going, yeah, I've actually lost relationships that I, at least I thought at the time, meant a hell of a lot to me. And some that still do, I think. You know, there were others that over time you look back and go, okay, perhaps that wasn't as much of what I thought it was at the time. But that in the leaving, that place is also impoverished. And, and I find that inability to hold that tension, to hold that space for process that we were talking about a while back, I find that really sad as well, that, uh, that the place that is left also loses out big time. But that if you look back over your shoulder, you often only seem to see these smug little grins. As if they've just been <laughs> They've won. Like, God, we got rid of that dickhead. Like, now we're going to be doing better off than we were. And, I, and you know, let me say, this has just struck me now. I want to rage at that point, And I want to turn around and I want to 
I feel like the two monkeys from the first Madagascar movie where they're like, of course we're going to throw poo at them. You know, <laughs> I just want to go nuts. And somehow woven through our last three guests for me is a sense of just, okay, we just moved on. And it was sad and it was hard and we didn't want to. But there isn't, I didn't hear an overwhelming sense in any of their three stories of, we're looking back over our shoulder, hurling back curses and, you know, hoping that they will have the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. And <laughs> yeah. I'll be sort of back and I'll bring my prince down and fire with you. Yeah. <laughs> and that was quite challenging for me because there are definitely spaces in which I want to return to some of those communities and pseudo-communities and just kind of lay waste in some ways. And I can tell that that is a part of the process, and I'm happy to own that. Like I, could, I know it's messy even as I say it. I know it's incomplete as I say it. But I see that also that's part of the process is I'm just sort of I'm dealing with the pain of what that rejection can feel like, of how deep that can go. You know, that it's not just a physical rejection. Don't be in our geographical space. It's emotional and spiritual and relational. There's so many levels to that. And so I'm challenged by that to go, sure, I wonder, will I also feel that same freedom to just strike out into the wilderness and go, okay, well, you know, you know I know what you're going to miss out on. And I also have a sense of my pain of what I'm missing out on, but there's almost some freedom I see in their stories as they strike out. Yeah, you know, you use that 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 whole thing of of, of heading off into the into the desert, and and I think you know, and, and for me, just in terms of reflecting um, historically, you know, late in the third century, there's a there's a guy called Anthony who goes off into the desert. He is recognised as as one of the the, the desert fathers, um, you know, perhaps the the, the most well known, um, mm. and he goes off Some into of the desert. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and he goes off not not so much to get away from everything, but in order to draw near to God. And so, yes, mm. um, you know, the whole movement, let's be honest, was tax evasion. <laughs> <laughs> really, I think you can summarize it as tax evasion in terms of what's happening in society and the empire and the protest against it. But together with that, there's the recognition, you know, that 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 Christ was led off by the Spirit into the desert and faced temptations. And, and they go about doing the same. By the middle of the of the of the fourth century, that community of solitary monastics rivals the size of cities. Mm. And by the middle of the fourth century, they established the first institution of people to live together and find a way to to not die alone, <laughs> starving to death, <laughs> you know, taking spirituality too far and fasting yourself to death in the desert, but find a way to, to live together in community, but as people have chosen that life to go off, to draw near to God. And, and that's, that's the first monastics that come about, which predates the institution of the church. And, and when I was reflecting on that a while back and just recognizing that people were deconstructing and leaving and that they were going off into the desert, that, that's for me where the, where the phrase urban mystic came from. Because mm. so many people today are leaving the institutions, not just of Christianity, but of the other religions as well, to be alone in the urban desert and, and mm. to basically find their way, face the, the complexities of life 
the complexities of themselves in life and actually be present to that. And, and, and for me, that's, that's just the image. And that's, that's where the term urban mystic comes from, the recognition mm. that, that I feel like in our time, we've got that similar movement taking place. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if the number of people deconstructing Christianity, um, certainly by the end of the, the pandemic, rivals the number of people that are still in the institution. Um, sure. But but I think it's a big thing, and I I recognise that that as I've come to grapple with it, I'm I'm coming to terms with how much bigger it is than than even I thought it was. It really begs the question in terms of the future picture. You know, as you talk about that potential size differential that those within uh, those without would rival the size of those within, <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm just I'm struck by this picture of. I, I see in my mind's eye this single man walking out because, you know, Anthony's a man. So he wanders out into the desert and then there are others and others. And as you say, and then there are these communities living together. Well, and well I can like definitely... his annoyance at, at going out to be alone and then suddenly he's alone <laughs> together with, come with, with, the, with the city of people. <laughs> we're not with you. We're just alone around the corner, you know. <laughs> it's like very Monty Python. I can just picture it. Can you please move your pole a bit further away? Your lice are beginning to jump onto my pole, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but anyway, but it, it really does. You know, one of the things that's fascinated me is this question of what is in the future. Because there is this sense of engaging with people one-on-one -on -one and seeing what feels like a tiny trickle of people leaving these individual institutions. You know, if we took kind of geographically located, but as you draw back, you do just see more and more. And I'm just aware more and more of just how many people are going through some of these things. Even people that I would think, I've had some conversations with people that have surprised me. I thought, Jesus, I thought you were, you were like embedded like a tick in the organization, <laughs> in the institution. And you're also asking those questions. Wow, I'm amazed. And, and you know, some are quite it's like trembling questions at the beginning. Dare we even think these before we voice them? Some are voicing mm. them quite boldly. Some are, you know, quite over it and rushing off into the desert. But then I also start to see, like we mentioned earlier, there's, there's just these communities starting to spring up of people in this, this urban desert that you talk about. And I am fascinated to know in 5, 10, 50 years, what will this look like? And I guess even on top of that, I'm wondering in 250 years, will we be processing another, <laughs> another dramatic walking away from whatever the, this walking away has been? But let me not let my cynicism overrun me. <laughs> well, well, you, you know, his, history tells that story, but I think history has been framed by a particular narrative around the institution that has basically said, don't deconstruct in a solitary way we quickly need to move towards establishing institutions. And I find, I find that that's often the question that, that immediately leads on from, from, from people. They, so, so for instance, one of the series that I run, the seven key relationships, really um, brings people, you know, it's the notion of how do I live deeply into these relationships and people share a journey in that. And nine times out of 10 people that ask me, so do I form a permanent home group out of that? And am I trying to plant a church with those home groups? And I go, no, that's not the point. The point is for people to develop their own relational practices when it comes to this kind of stuff, you know. Get out and of your so, worldview. 
<laughs> yeah, and so in the past, we've always been, we've always, and this is something I'm gonna uh, gonna give some time to and and do some you know writing and you know uh, about in the near future and that kind of stuff. But but with every renewal that's been in the past, we've very quickly moved towards institutions, and we've seen re renewals as as the reinvigoration of the institution and God basically putting a rubber stamp on the institution. You know, so, so, you know, we can look back to some of the early awakenings and go, oh, in this awakening, God added another 10,000 people to the church. You know, the church that was asleep and disimpassioned, God has awoken. And, and when you look back and you, and you break down the, the conditionalism of the environment, it's, it's people who had an idea of God that are coming to, to experience God for the first time. And I, I feel, feel like I see a lot of that stuff being reflected in the deconstruction. It's a lot of people that were on the way out due to frustration, discovering God, and then still being on the way out, as opposed to being on the way back back in. And, and so for me, that that then reflects that whole thing of, of, of the early monastics of in hearing the voice of God, they left out, they left to go into the desert, you know, you know, and, and the same thing of of Christ is led into the desert to be alone and to face the temptation, to face himself and you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot of nuance there. So, so I think in that sense, deconstruction is built by many people as being a new thing, and being an unhealthy thing, and being a thing that we, that Christians aren't supposed to entertain, and and we're supposed to shut it down because it's about the church. But historically, that deconstruction predates. It predates the institution of the church as we know it. And, and I think it's important that we recognize and we hold on to that, 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 that in most things, it's that audience of one that is important, and that audience of one is that face-to-face -face engagement with God. What the monastics bring to the picture is the question of, so what does that actually look like? Whereas I feel like, together with Christianity, we, often we've got the message of sin and separation from God. And so how do we know God? It's through the Bible and through church, through people's preaching. It's and through the sacraments in the more orthodox or more classic expressions. It's not in the face-to-face -face meeting. So, so this preaching the Bible and these sacraments, they're not bridges to the face-to-face -face because, well, you can't expect the face-to-face. -face. You're a sinner. You're only going to be free of your sin in the life that is to come, in the afterlife. You know, so you store up treasures in heaven, blah, 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 you know, whatever the image is, right? Um, because you're not going to have that experience with God in this life. But I don't think that that's that's the case. That's not the message. You know, Christ is an example to us, not of what we can't have in this life, right? <laughs> that would suck. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send my only begotten son to show what a life and a relationship with God looks like. That is not available to any of you. Look all my cool stuff, you poor bastard. <laughs> Don't expect to hear the voice of God. And if you do, it's going to look like American evangelical insanity. <laughs> Well, maybe I shouldn't go there. I, I'm not. I'm not ready to go there yet. No, I think let's let's not explore that rabbit warren just yet. Let's 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 just raise that and dial back from that. What you're saying really takes me back to some of where we started, even in in season one, in in this idea of first and second order change, but something that I've just it's as it's kind of it's just sat with me and mellowed further and further. I think even perhaps when I first said it, and I know some of the people that were, were talking to me at that point were commenting and going, so you just want to burn down the church. 
and I'm realizing more and more, no, the idea is, is actually this Anthony heading into the desert. He's just heading into the desert. That's the second order change idea. The first order would be, I'm going into the desert, and in the next three months, I'll establish a better type of community. It's not that. It's allowing those things to be put down for enough time that what is actually important can be prioritized, which is this idea, I'm going into the desert to seek God. And what emerges after that seeking, and, and I think there is a, there's kind of a time element there that it mustn't emerge too quickly or too desperately, because the seeking of God is almost a lavish use of time. It's, it's almost wasteful <laughs> in a way, and, and it can't be rushed. And I was just thinking, a couple that I'd been speaking with recently, and they decided three months ago that we're going to leave the church after, leave their church. This is after years and years and years of being just faithful, that, you know, this is the language, faithful, solid Christians, Sunday in and Sunday out, serving quiet times, reading their Bibles, all that sort of stuff. And I remember just celebrating, thinking, this is a win. <laughs> like, this is fantastic. And some of the messages they were given is what we've been talking about. Don't fall away, and it's going to be bad, and you must be careful, and all this sort of stuff. And I was egging them on, going, fantastic, go, go, go. And caught up with them a week or so ago. And they're very excited. We're exploring new churches. And I was like, oh, really? Already? Their response was, yeah, well, you know, you don't, you don't want to get out of the habit of being in church because that's really important. And I remember just going, oh, okay. It, there's nothing like being presented with the blunt reality of we really don't see things the same way <laughs> to go, okay, cool. So, so that was really just the first order change of pull back for a little bit, realign a couple of things, and then straight back into, into institution, into the safety and it just took the wind out of my sails going, I was so hopeful for a, well, let it rest for as long as it takes for us to do the desert walking and seek God. And then whatever emerges is fine. But it seems as though for that entire time there was, but we'd better not, you know, get too far away from the church lest we stray. <laughs> that sparks two things off for me. The one, the one is, is I've seen people very quickly go from going, this church thing isn't working. I'm going to plant another church thing and watch that will work. But they just do the same thing. They may shift from, you know, making preaching or the sacrament central and having a building to meeting in a home and then, for instance, making creativity the central thing. But then that becomes the new fundamentalism. That becomes the new um, yardstick that everyone has measured as being in or out around. That is like, it's first order change because all you're doing is, is you're polishing the furniture, right? And you're shifting it around, you're jumbling it, but you're not actually answering the question of like fundamentally, what do I need? What am I doing? What, what am I looking for? Well, I don't like church this way, so I'm going to do church in the way that I like it. Doing church is still the central paradigm there. And I feel like a lot of deconstruction, moving to reconstruction very quickly is that. The other thing is, is as you say, the individual thing. And I think, I think I've seen it with people where they, they spend five years in a church and they go through the process and they leave. Then they move to their next church and, oh, this church is so wonderful. And they spend three years in that next church and then they leave. 
and then they spend two years in the next church, and then they leave, and they spend a year in the next church. But they're also not deconstructing in the sense that they are engaging the first order change of this church isn't the right church, the next church will be the right church. Ah, I think this is the church. And then they go through the process of becoming members and then realizing that I thought there was a freedom here, but there isn't, and so I'm going to leave. Or, or I thought there was permission for the questions that I was asking, and now I realize that there's just new questions that I can't ask. Or, in, or it's just, that, you know, it's still an in and out group, but it shifted. It's, it's you, you're shifting one fundamentalism for another, for instance, or one, or one thing. So the question then becomes, what is it one is looking for? And I think that when we shifted from what kind of church am I looking for to how do I engage God? How do I make that relational engagement central? What are those practices? It becomes the story changes. I think this season has opened up a nuanced uh, deconstruction for me and it's just been valuable engaging people. And I, I really hope that it's been the same for, for everyone that's listening. And, and by no means is this the end of the conversation. By no means is this the end of, of, of the nuancing or the, or the expansiveness or the depth, you know, the, 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 the terrain and the, the height and the depth of what deconstruction can be. And I, I think, as you say, you know, it's going to be it's going to be really good keeping going and listening to more voices in future and, and of allowing this to be nuanced. And, and I, I really just want more voices to be added to this conversation. Uh, what a cool journey it's been. Uh, a last word of thanks from me really to, uh, to all our guests um, and then to all our listeners and to everyone who's engaged and got hold of our Tim or I and just shared their reflections. Um, their thoughts, their resonance with our guests' stories, where it's different, their challenges. It's been wonderful. I totally echo that. Thank you so much to everyone that's been a part of, uh, that's been a guest on this season. Thank you to everyone that, that, that has listened to, to, to this season uh, or just uh, episodes in, in, in the podcast during this, this season. Thank you to everyone that I've just had a chance to engage with around us. I've, I've, I've really grown through this personally. And I'm looking forward to, to more conversations and to spend more time deconstructing both here on the podcast and one-on-one and -on -one with people and, and communities that are, that, that are going through these questions and going through these processes. So, so thank you so much for spending your time uh, with me, Steve, as well. Uh, it's just been wonderful sharing this journey with you so far, and I'm looking forward to, to the future together.